It's not very well known, but the U.S. Congress funds an Institute of Peace headquartered in Washington, D.C. We are the leading experts, if you will, on international conflict, war and peace building issues. The U.S. Institute of Peace brainstorms solutions to conflict and in many cases executes programs internationally that help prevent conflict and secure newly negotiated peace agreements. We are going to other countries and offering our help and often there's a stated need. We need help with this and then we work with them to develop an idea. The USIP, as it's called, is now located on the National Mall in an eye-catching building in view of the nation's most famous monuments. If you come over Memorial Bridge at night and you see the Lincoln, the Jefferson, and the Washington monuments, this will be the fourth thing you see. We think that's very powerful. We profile the U.S. Institute of Peace today on Peace Talks Radio, a series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. This is Peace Talks Radio, a series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We put the spotlight on peacemakers throughout history and today, whether it's the search for inner peace or learning how to resolve conflicts we have with others in our families, workplaces, communities, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls in our home studio in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and joining me from Washington, D.C., where she lives and works, is Peace Talks Radio co-founder Suzanne Kreider who's reporting for us today on the United States Institute of Peace, or USIP, a federally funded independent institute that was uh, established when, Suzanne? In 1984. But the idea got moving in 1976 when a group of bipartisan congressional representatives started moving the idea along in Congress. It was President Jimmy Carter who appointed a commission to study the idea of a peace academy. And the commission recommended that it happen. And then, during the Ronald Reagan administration, the USIP was voted into existence by Congress, ironically as part of a defense authorization bill. So with a somewhat modest budget of $45 million, USIP has been working since then in a nonpartisan way to promote peace internationally. It seems that not many people know about the USIP, but that may change, as in 2011, they opened up a stunning new headquarters building right on the National Mall, across the street from the Lincoln Memorial. It's certainly going to draw tourists and more attention. So recently, you spent quite a bit of time talking with people there, uh, got a tour of that new building, which we'll hear later in the program, and you learned about some specific programs USIP is engaged with. Uh, Who are we going to hear from first? Tara Sonnashine, she's Executive Vice President of the U.S. Institute of Peace. The United States Institute of Peace is a national institution that helps the country and the world look at the ongoing problem of conflict, conflict that affects nations and peoples all around the world. We are the leading experts, if you will, on international conflict, war and peace-building issues. How did it get started? The notion of having a peace establishment or a peace institution goes way back to George Washington. In fact, George Washington was one of the first national leaders to envision what he called a peace establishment. What do you think George Washington was envisioning? Well, we've done a little bit of of history uh, research on this. 
1783, George Washington sent a circular to the states. And he said that, and I'm going to quote Washington from this circular to the states, saying that the adoption of a proper peace establishment was, and I quote, essential to the well-being and the very existence of the United States as an independent power. Now, for all we know, George Washington was envisioning a naval academy or a war college, or maybe he was envisioning the United States Institute of Peace. We don't know, but what we do know is that it took many hundreds of years before the Institute of Peace, as we know it today, came into being. But there were uh, people all across the United States who wanted this kind of institution, lobbied Congress for it, um, pushed for it, and we know ultimately it came into existence um, with many presidents involved from Jimmy Carter onward. If the Institute is like an academy, what are the reasons it's not as well known as the Naval Academy or the Air Force Academy or the other defense academies? Well, firstly, 25, 26 years is not a very long time um, for institutions. Um, When you think about the Smithsonian or other institutions that have been around um, some 100 years. But I would say also the Institute of Peace has worked quietly um, and diligently behind the scenes for many years, trying to work with conflicts and parties to conflict and to respect the privacy of individuals trying to work on their differences, and never really imagined that having a big public banner was as important to us as getting the conflicts prevented and managed and resolved. So we have been quite purposefully almost quiet about our work, but we've begun to see that the public is really interested and that part of our mission is public education. And so, in effect, we really do have a responsibility to be much more open and visible and public. And part of why we're telling our story um, to you today is that we understand that people are very interested in this subject and it's become, frankly, much more part of our lives. How has it become more part of our lives? You know, for many years, uh, one could say that conflict overseas was kept far, far away from American shores. The breakup of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War, really began to enable Americans to see that there were all of these conflicts that had been kept in check by two great superpowers began to unfold. Places like the Balkans and the former Yugoslavia that broke up into pieces, if one thinks back to Bosnia and Kosovo. So really, I think by the end of the 90s, it became clear that we were not going to have much choice about seeing these ethnic, religious, and political conflicts. Of course, 9-11 and what happened on that day brought conflict to our shores in a very visible and visceral way. Transportation, communications, information technology, a world without walls, if you will, means that what happens very far away has spillover into really everybody's lives as conflict has a tendency to travel. 
But we would be the first to say, and I'm sure Washington and way before George Washington, that conflict is part of the human condition. It's how you wrestle with it that is most interesting. What would you say to our listeners who are thinking, well, there's a lot of violent conflict in the United States. What are the reasons that the USIP doesn't focus on domestic issues? Well, again, one has to go back to our congressional roots. And what was envisioned then was not so much a domestic academy to look at the many conflicts that we do have at home, but to really extend our vision overseas. Name the places where you all are doing the most work right now. What would amaze your listeners is that the United States Institute of Peace has an office in Baghdad, in Iraq, in Kabul, in Afghanistan, and those are obviously two hot zones right now of conflict. But we also have our people traveling to many places where we don't have a permanent office, but where we're quite active, Pakistan, Iran, the Middle East, the Arab-Israeli conflict, Sudan, the Korean Peninsula. So those are areas of major focus, but we're also um, operative in Colombia, in our own hemisphere. We're very engaged, of course, in Europe, all over. Um, We're engaged in Nepal, um, Burma. We look at Yemen. It's, It's almost as if there's no part of the world where there isn't something to keep us busy. How is what you do different than what the State Department does? Well, firstly, we come and go. uh, Let me back up and say administrations come and go, but the U.S. Institute of Peace remains. Because we are bipartisan and nonpartisan, we're able to work with really any administration that comes into office. Um, We work closely with the State Department, but we don't try to be the State Department. And by that, I mean the State Department has diplomats who are handling official U.S. government diplomacy. We are sort of an additive force, if you will. We can help think about issues outside the daily pressures of a State Department or a Pentagon. We can convene people from all sides of an issue, and we're also a sort of neutral playing field, if you will, for the military, civilians, religious figures, economic, political, legal, police. So we, in a sense, have the luxury of being innovative across the spectrum. Our listeners can visualize the USIP employees right now in Baghdad and Kabul. What are they doing right now? Well, in Afghanistan, our folks right now are training women in the hopes that women in Afghanistan can participate in what is called the jirga, which is really the convening of Afghan officials. And very often women and girls are left out of institutions and governance in Afghanistan because they don't have the skills to really be at the table. So right now we're helping on that. Also in Afghanistan, we're working to train conflict mediators so that the Afghans themselves know how to mediate their land disputes, for example. In Iraq right now, we're working on still trying to bring some interfaith dialogue with many of the religious and ethnic minorities. Um, Right now, we're working on genocide prevention, trying to look at ways that the U.S. government and other governments can spot 
a genocide early? What are the warning signs so that we don't wait until it is so late to really address those? In Pakistan, we are working on trying to understand how to help women parliamentarians in Pakistan, for example. With Iran, right now we're looking at what we can expect in the scenarios in Iran and how the U.S. would position itself for whatever outcome occurs in that ongoing, unsettled country. Our listeners, Tara, all around the country, what should they be most excited about that you all are doing? What's the impact on their life? I think the work we're doing to build a national academy to train the professionals so that we're understanding how what are the tools and the toolkit that our future practitioners will need to operate in these conflict zones? What are your grantees and your researchers learning about peace? What can we tell Americans to be hopeful about, or should we lower our expectations? I think what we've learned after a quarter of a century is that there are tools and approaches and techniques that can be used to prevent violence, to manage it if it does erupt, and to deal with the aftermath. What we've learned is that cycles, violence is a cycle, and you can catch it in the beginning before it boils up and boils over, but if you don't deal with the outcome of war and conflict, it will come around the bend again. And so what we've learned is that there are various points at which you can intervene in this life cycle of conflict and build the institutions, the capability, the knowledge, and the skills to prevent something from waging and raging out of control and to deal with the enormous history and memory and pain and scars of conflict that can easily lead to it reigniting unless you know some of these techniques. It is possible. It is hopeful. And every individual can actually play a role. Um, Take, for example, landmines. Um, There have been campaigns in which even young children have participated in understanding uh, the fight against landmines. Even high school students can write an essay, become aware, become involved, become knowledgeable. Every American can read a newspaper and begin to understand what is happening in the world around them. So we think that information, knowledge, and awareness is a very important first skill if you want to participate in the global community. There is so much negative information in the media about conflict, and we see the violence. It sounds like you are envisioning the USIP as an antidote. Well, I'd say it's much easier to show war than to show peace building and peacemaking. One is a quick snapshot of something perhaps violent or uncomfortable. The other is a process, and it's often hard to show a process. But we actually think that people will enjoy seeing the work that goes on and enjoy knowing that it's not just a headline of more violence and more bloodshed and more loss of life, but people actually working on reducing the chances of violence that takes lives, takes livelihood, drains our economy, leaves children and families scarred, that there are actually things that can be done. That's a very optimistic message, and we think one that people are ready for. 
It sounds like, though, the USIP doesn't have any plans to help people resolve violent conflict in their own families or in their own lives. I know people are concerned about workplace violence and, uh, like you said, bullying. Any plans like that in the future? We think some of the principles that underlie conflict resolution and conflict management are quite human and can be transferred and utilized. And everybody has their own conflict management style. Some of us like to avoid conflict altogether. Some of us are a little bit of the appeaser type, and we'd like to kind of make it go away very quickly. One thing we teach is evaluating your own style of conflict management, which I think is something that would translate across the board. Other things like listening skills are something that we can all use. Putting yourself in somebody else's shoes, understanding their story, how to hear what they're saying and translate what they mean. So I think one will find that many of the basic traits and tools are pretty common to all cultures, although layered onto that, of course, are all the different cultural elements and cross-cultural things that people bring to their storyline. When you talk about conflict prevention as the absence of, help our listeners see that process in their own lives. What's the carryover? Well, most of us understand prevention in health and medical terms. We understand that if you can prevent a disease from happening to begin with, that you're much more likely to get ahead of the cost and the negative outcome. So I would liken some of what we do to getting ahead of a process that can be very damaging. So if we can spot violence before it reaches that crescendo, that point at which it's very hard to turn back, um, I think we all understand escalation and de-escalation. And if we can understand that slope going up, then we can intervene before it reaches, as I say, that boiling point where it's very hard to lower the flame. Tara Sonnenshine is Executive Vice President of the United States Institute of Peace, talking with our Suzanne Kreider. We'll have more of our profile of the USIP on Peace Talks Radio right after this break. I'm Paul Ingalls, and you're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Online with all of our episodes going back to 2003 at peacetalksradio.com. Today we're profiling the United States Institute of Peace, a federally funded independent institute established in 1984 to study conflict around the world and seek out and in some cases manage peace-building efforts of all kinds. 
Our Suzanne Kreider is online with us from Washington, D.C., where the USIP is headquartered in a recently finished new building that we'll get a tour of later. Suzanne talked with several key players at USIP to learn more. Who will we hear from next? I had lunch with David Smith, the USIP's National Education Outreach Officer, and Lauren Sucher, the Director of Public Affairs. I started by asking David what his definition of peace is. I think many people think peace is being the absence of violence and the absence of war. And I think for many people, that probably should be peace. Uh, People who live in very violent circumstances and very violent environments, uh, you know, they walk out their door and they're dodging bullets. And uh, so the absence of violence is very important. But in other ways, peace is much deeper. I think uh, people could live in an environment where on the surface it looks like there's no violence, but there's suppression of rights. You know, I mean, uh, you look at societies quite often, you say, well, everybody looks pretty peaceful there, right? But there's a totalitarian government in power. There are no human rights in that society. Uh, The underclass is kept under thumb. That's not a peaceful society. USIP uses civil society as a marker. How do you gauge if a country has a civil society or not? I I guess one way of understanding is analogizing to our own society. Uh, The word civil society is very much of an international term, but look at the United States. We belong to civic and uh, public associations, the PTA. Um, You can write a letter to the newspaper. Uh, You can march on the mall when you wish. These are all ways in which people engage, in which people are able to articulate their views. Their views are often contrary to each other. You can call talk radio, for instance. And that's civil society. That's the people who are making up our society. They're operating, we'll say, in a civil-mannered way, but are still articulating their points of view. In other societies, you can't do that. You write a letter to the newspaper... The next day or the next night or that night, 2 o'clock in the morning, the secret police take you away and you're never heard from again. Or there are no ways of protesting in the streets because you'll be thrown in jail. Societies that lack that ability, lack those organizations, or societies don't have civil society. Well, civil society is the way that you articulate your differences peacefully. The failure to do that often means blood in the streets. So that's why civil society is important everywhere. Yes, Lauren? I think that peace is more than just the absence of war, of war or the absence of violence. If you stop and think about it, once let's say a country or society has been at war, once the peace treaty is signed, so many of us think, okay, war's over, now we're back to peace, quote-unquote. But really, in a way, that's when the real hard work begins, because that's when neighbors have to start talking to one another again. That's when stores have to start reopening, right? Everything, quote-unquote, has to come back to normal. And that takes time, and there, it's so... A society that's just coming out of a war or a conflict is very fragile, right? Because what if I can get to the market now to start getting food for my family? Or what if the market, you know, the the vendor that I usually go to or that merchant is out of stuff today or doesn't want to sell to me today because he's still mad, you know, there's still underlying tensions from this conflict. So a peace treaty can be signed by leaders, but it's people in neighborhoods that really have to live out, if you will, this peace and this treaty. So you need, the society has to begin rebuilding itself, right? And that takes a lot of forms, like, are the police back? Is there is there law and order in the streets? Are What happens, you know, if there's a fire? Is there a fire department who can come 
and help our hospitals up and running. It's like there's a million different pieces that, that need to begin rebuilding themselves again. And that's when you have pieces, when you don't have to think about whether I can trust the policemen or not. Suzanne Kreider with David Smith and Lauren Sucher, outreach and education experts at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Now, Suzanne, you also talked with some program officers. I guess USIP has several different divisions? Yes, they have staff and grantees studying different points on what they call the conflict curve, pre-conflict, ongoing conflicts, post-conflict. And some divisions look at various tools for peacebuilding or various stakeholders in the process. Stephanie Schwartz is a senior program assistant in the Center for Mediation and Conflict Resolution. She also coordinates all of the programs related to youth at USIP, which is a key focus. We talked about a book she wrote relevant to that part of her job. Yes, I wrote a book called uh, Youth and Post-Conflict Reconstruction, Agents of Change. The main academic output on youth and conflict focuses on this idea of the youth bulge, which basically says that in the world today, there is a disproportionately large population of youth, especially in the Middle East. And in countries that have this abnormally high population of youth, those countries are more probable to fall into conflict just simply by having a large youth population or a large population of young men. And I sort of thought to myself, this seems that it could be true, but what is really happening? Is this really the case? You know, there's a lot of theories as to why this could happen because young men don't have access to education. Or if they did have access access to education and a university education, they don't have anything to do with that degree. They're selling falafel on the street. It's hard to measure that in the pre-conflict stage. So I decided to look at the post-conflict and say, okay, let's look at three cases of post-conflict reconstruction where the country has signed a peace accord, they've started moving towards the process of rebuilding the state, and let's look at countries that have a disproportionately high population of youth. So I looked at Mozambique, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Kosovo. And what I found, at least in these three cases, is that, yes, youth have an effect on the trajectory of the post-conflict reconstruction process. And it can be for good or it can be for ill. But it really depends on how well reconstruction actors are able to address youth issues, address reintegration writ large. And by reintegration, I mean not just reuniting former child soldiers with their families, but going well beyond that to providing young people with opportunities to have a community, to be able to really live as they would normally have coming out of war back in their community that they came from or the community of their choice. It's, it's, it's wide open. So able to address reintegration, able to address access to education, and finally able to address opportunities for social empowerment, social and political, to bring youth voices into the Reconstruction Dialogue. For instance, in Kosovo, in the refugee camps, um, a number of different youth took it upon themselves to just start say, hey, we can help our peers. We can help the poorer people in the camps and started organizing community service projects in the camps. International organizations immediately spotted this and say, how do we support it? How do we keep this going? And helped this sort of makeshift Um, movement formalize itself. And from that developed a a Kosovo youth network of 
youth-driven NGOs now operating in the country, and also the Kosovo Youth Congress, which is a way for young people to interact with their local politicians and express what the youth platform is, what youth want to see in their country as it moves from war to peace. And really not just give them a platform and an outlet for their voices, but a way to see that their voices are being heard and that they're being integrated into policy. What could our listeners take away from your experience working with, say, Kosovo youth that would help them in their own communities with youth? I think the biggest lesson that I learned researching this project is that the key to youth programming, especially in conflict, is that when it's youth-led, youth-driven, youth-designed, then it's really going to be on point and it's going to be the most effective. And it's not only going to help youth, it's going to help communities because they see the problems in their communities as well. And when they have ownership over the process, they feel included as opposed to marginalized, really included in the peace process, and they're going to go back and give back to their communities. You've worked with the issue of youth and reconstruction. How about youth and prevention of violence? Is there any way that we can involve youth in pre-conflict. Absolutely. There are a lot of different cases where different NGOs or different organizations have worked with youth who maybe they were former fighters, maybe they had some interaction with conflict. And after the conflict, in order to make sure that it doesn't fall into conflict again, they've formed youth crime prevention brigades that have been patrolling neighborhoods the way we have a neighborhood watch. And by having them as neighborhood watch, you're not only sort of preventing the average theft and crime, you also have people connected to a network to say, hey, this is going on in the neighborhood. There's a lot of talk around this issue and a lot of heated debate around this. And this could potentially bubble up and be a bigger thing. And get it to the right sources and the right people to start trying to put a prevention mechanism in place. Some critics might say that we're just trying to export democracy in terms of um, trying to go in and put our methods of governance or trying to use our models of militia or police. You know, it's a big issue. And I think it's something that USIP we're not here to export democracy. We're here to talk about peace, and that's different. And any way that we can help improve governance, especially including different different traditional justice systems, is important to us. And in, in fact, we have a number of different programs that look specifically at the gaps between uh, formal criminal justice systems and traditional justice systems um, and how to... It, look at the gap between the two. So in many ways, we're addressing that issue. Um, but our goal is to, is first and foremost, looking at peace and making and, and conflict resolution, not democracy. Well, I just had a crazy idea. What if there was um, a Mozambique Institute of Peace? They wanted to come over to the United States and work with gangs in Chicago or Detroit or any U.S. city. What do you think about that? It's an interesting concept because it brings up the fact that we are going to other countries and offering our help. But the first thing that we do is we work with them on the ground and, and often there's a stated need. We need help with this. We, we're not experts on this. And what we know that the U.S. Institute of Peace is and how can you help us? And then we work with them to develop an idea. We say, hey, this might be able to address your issue of 
uh, you know, violence in the Niger Delta with, you know, relationships with the oil companies, this might be able to help. And we work with them to develop the project. And so there is some local ownership over what's going on. It's not just the U.S. Institute of Peace going in there and saying, we know how to do this. We here in the U.S. sitting in D.C. know exactly what's going on. We've analyzed the conflict and now we're going to fix it. We make it a, a point to work with the country and see how they view the conflict, what what issues are prominent for them, and then help them in you know, using our expertise and our research to, to guide a, a project that could potentially have a positive impact. Uh, one of the programs that I'll tell you about, uh, we've uh, developed a multimedia program for Iraqi youth ages 14 to 18. And now this is Theo Dolan, a program officer for the U.S. Institute of Peace in their Centers of Innovation. He works on programs that use media as a peace-building tool. He told me about a film documentary they made of a youth initiative in Iraq that was very interesting. We've uh, worked with Iraqi youth, uh, Iraqi civil society, and media members to develop a 30-minute documentary and uh, a parallel social networking website to give these uh, Iraqi kids uh, a chance to express themselves and give them a way to uh, make better choices so that they have a choice um, in front of them that is not... A negative one. All right. I'm an eighth grader in Baghdad. I watch this movie. What do I see? Well, you, you see the Iraqi youth, uh, the teenagers, basically taking charge. They're in charge of the content. They're expressing themselves. They're competing in a number of challenges, such as a short film competition. They develop their own short films, and there's a winner at the end of the documentary. Uh, they have a quiz show in which they're competing against other kids from around Iraq. And they have to work together to come up with the right solution. There's a performance competition. So they're competing against each other in mixed groups, I should say, in, in poetry or theater uh, or music. And what do I learn about peacemaking? Because I saw this movie and maybe I engaged in the social networking site. The whole program, both the documentary and the website, are based on a curriculum that was developed to promote things like self-confidence. Uh, respect for diversity, citizenship, and that's the backbone of the whole project. So the kids are learning that through their experiences during uh, during their interaction, uh, during the filming of the documentary, and, and on the follow-up uh, website. It's an experiential type of, of project, and you, should, you can see it. From, um, from the beginning of the program when the 30 kids from around the country arrived for the competitions. They didn't know each other. They had never met uh, Kurdish-speaking kids before. And then at the end of the program, suddenly they're all exchanging phone numbers. They're exchanging emails. They've stayed online uh, on the social networking site since then, um, which has uh, more than tripled in membership. They've brought their friends into it. So uh, it, it, it's the experience that, that shows the effects of, uh, of what we are hoping to get out of the curriculum. Um, we're actually uh, planning right now to make a full television series, about six to ten episodes, based on the format that I just described to you from the documentary. What's that going to be like, Big Brother and Baghdad? I mean, uh -huh. <laughs> it's not going to be like a reality TV show, right? It, it will be a reality TV show, and it's uh, it's meant to be entertaining, but also to put forward some of the goals that we outlined in the curriculum to um, spread the, the peace-building message and to make it a, a local issue. 
uh, these kids, when they participate in the competitions, uh, in the documentary, and in the series, will go home. And the hope is that they'll be active peace builders in their own communities. So that's Theo Dolan with the U.S. Institute of Peace on their youth and media initiative in Iraq. And the winner of the first place prize is Margaret Hardy from California. While the USIP focuses primarily international, it has had, since its inception in 1984, an annual National Peace Essay Contest for U.S. high school students who compete for a chance to come to Washington, D.C. and visit the Institute, the State Department, their congressional representatives, and participate in peacebuilding workshops. One student from each state, the District of Columbia, and the U.S. territories gather in June each year. In 2010, I talked with several of the young people, and here are just a couple. Uh, My name is Jessica Lee Countryman, and I'm from Kenai, Alaska. Tell us about the essay you wrote. Well, my essay was based on this year's prompts from the Peace Essay Contest, which was discussing the effectiveness of nonviolent civic action. We were supposed to reveal two different international conflicts, and I chose to focus on Aung San Suu Kyi of Burma and the Danish resistance against the Nazis by hiding the Jews. What inspired you to write about Aung San Suu Kyi? I had read about her previously from my history class, and I found her an absolutely motivating individual and one that doesn't seem to get the spotlight very often. And considering that she has been restricted from the media, I feel like she should be in the spotlight more often so that her message can be out there. How do you think this experience will impact your life? I definitely think one of the things that has taught me most is that I definitely need to pursue seeing both sides, that I can't rely on any one source of news media that I find, that I need to seek out both sides before, so that I can make an educated decision. What do you want our listeners who are teenagers to know about peace and what you've learned this week? I would say I would really challenge my peers to pursue thinking for themselves. I know that sounds really harsh, but oftentimes it's a lot easier. I know that I personally have been in this boat, that your peers can determine the way that you think. Even the way that you were raised can determine the way that you think. And that may be valid. It may be a valid point of view, but you should at least think of the different perspectives. And that will confirm your point of view if you're still remaining in the way that you were brought up. But it can also open your eyes to the validity of another point of view. I am Jacob Clark from Watertown, South Dakota. One of the big focuses was a simulation where we were given a protest in Columbia and each of us represented different civil or governmental officials and we had to come to a compromise and determine how the protest would happen and what the protest would mean to the Colombian people. Who did you get to represent in the simulation about Colombia? I was Cesar del Toro, which is the administrative assistant to the Department of Security. And what did you have to let go of, or what did you have to open your mind to in order to help the simulation? Um, Initially, I was told that my agenda was to stop the protests from happening at all because of security risks, but I eventually had to realize that that was an impossible goal and to make compromises such as allowing the protests to happen but to have it removed from the inauguration site so greater safety concerns could be addressed. So it's not getting everything you want, but being rational about it so there's a moderate compromise. What are the skills that you think you used well during the simulation? 
A couple of the skills that I thought the simulation really manifested and helped was both the ability to speak publicly and articulate the ideas that you wanted to represent, but also to look at things moderately and try to come to a compromise and realize that although we're coming from very different perspectives, how we can ultimately achieve the same goal because that is what all of us have in mind. Alaska's Jessica Lee Countryman and South Dakota's Jacob Clark, two finalists in the USIP 2010 National Peace Essay Contest. You can hear more of those interviews and lots more at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Of course, a link to the U.S. Institute of Peace is there as well. We're profiling it on today's program, and when we come back, our Suzanne Kreider gets a tour of the USIP headquarters, newly built in 2010 when she got a sneak preview. And she talks again with Tara Sonashine, the Institute's Executive Vice President. All coming up after this break. Peace Talks Radio is the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, and today we're spotlighting the work of the U.S. Institute of Peace. The United States Institute of Peace is an independent, nonpartisan national institution established and funded by Congress that works to help address conflict around the globe and promote peacemaking. USIP moved into sparkling new headquarters in 2011, and in 2010, Suzanne Kreider recorded her tour of the facility not long before it opened. And now I'm coming down to the front of the building, which faces Constitution Avenue and faces the Lincoln Memorial. Ah, there it is. It's the wing span of a white dove hanging over the edge of the top of the building. Apparently the entire roof of the building is covered with a giant form that that replicates a white dove. I'll have to have Robin West, the chairman of the board at USIP, explain this to me. It looks like the whole building is about 12 stories high. Um, And it looks like there's an open atrium. So as I am facing the front of the building now, there's a wall of windows that span all the way up. And different sections of the windows have clouds reflected in them. It's really beautiful as the sun is setting over the Potomac. I'm going to walk back up north on 23rd Street and go in the door so I can meet Robin West. He's going to give me a tour of the building. Let's see. They're opening the door. Hello, Robin. Hi. Come on in. Great. Welcome to the headquarters of the U.S. Institute of Peace, our new home. Thanks so much. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to give me this tour. Well, it's very exciting for those of us who've been involved in the 
conceptualization and raising the money and getting it built and uh, to see this come to fruition, uh, it's, it's very exciting and it's, it's, we think it's important. You know, what we're up to here is, is we hope is going to have a real impact on the world and how America conducts itself in the world. We're entering at the street level and we're walking up a bit of a spiraled staircase. Where are we going next? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to enter into uh, what will be known as the Congressional Pavilion, which looks out into the Great Hall. It's a very dramatic space, as you can see. It's a a soaring space uh, from uh, floor to ceiling is seven stories tall. The ceiling is in the sculptural shape of a dove. We believe this building is going to be three things. It's going to be a working building where the work of the Institute takes place. It's going to be an educational building, but it's also going to be a symbol. And one of the things that's important is that uh, if you come over Memorial Bridge at night, which is the gateway to Washington, and I would argue it's the most beautiful man-made entrance to any city in the world, when you come over at night and you see the Lincoln, the Jefferson, and the Washington monuments, this will be the fourth thing you see. We think that's very powerful. The other thing that's important is we're located just diagonally across the street from the Vietnam Memorial and other war memorials. And the notion that the sacrifices that people made over the years in all these wars um, often was for peace and so that their families in this country could live in peace. This is a very powerful statement. Uh, And symbolism matters on the mall. The mall is all about, it, it is a national symbol of our values and our history. And we think this is a new and powerful symbol. It's a gorgeous space. It has a very sleek, uh, somber feel to it because it's basically all white and tan. We're just at dusk, so we're seeing the sunset through this gorgeous expanse of windows. This glass wall, um, one of the things that's it's very powerful is you look over here and you see the Lincoln Memorial lit up at night. And where this building is very unusual in Washington is that it brings the outside in. And most of the buildings, such as the National Gallery, the East Wing of the National Gallery, which a lot of people think is the most important contemporary building in Washington, once you're inside it, you have no sense of what's outside. This is fabulous. This is just amazing. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. But it's, as, you, as you can see, it brings the outside in. It is. It's like there's no edge, really. Well, that's, as I say, there's a seven-story wall of glass. Uh, when you go upstairs and you look out, you can see... Uh, um, uh, Arlington, uh, you can see Kennedy's grave, you see Memorial Bridge. Uh, it's, it's one of the most dramatic locations in the city. Now, we're walking over to the edge so that we can see downstairs. What will be downstairs on that ground opening? Uh, well, actually, uh, it will stay much as it is now. It will be very simple. It's very open. Um, this building is, a, uh, although it's a very dramatic, soaring building, it actually was built uh, on time, on budget. How much did the building cost? The building uh, to this stage is about $160 million. It's been a public-private partnership. Tell us about the architect. The architect is an architect named Moshe Safdi, um, who had been head of the architecture department at Harvard. Uh, the most famous building he did was Yad Vashim, which is the uh, memorial in, uh, in Israel. Tell us a little bit about your story, Robin West. How did you get involved with USIP? Well, I've been in government um, uh, years ago. I was in the Ford and Reagan administration, then I left and started a 
an international energy consulting company, and I go all over the world. And in the uh, Reagan administration, I'd been an assistant secretary of interior in charge of offshore oil, and so on, which is now a very controversial issue. I was appointed to the board by President Bush and elected the chairman by the board and then reappointed. Uh, and uh, But this is something which has been, a, for me, a labor of love. It's, uh, I think it's an extraordinary building, and I think it's an extraordinary uh, institution. We're down on the street level where the education center will be. Tell us a little bit about that. What kind of exhibits will be here that the public can see? What we want to do is to engage the public. Uh, we want to engage students and, and young adults uh, about there is a big world out there and that they can make a difference in that world. And we want to show them ways that uh, people can contribute to peace, whether it's George Mitchell and the peace in Northern Ireland uh, or a woman uh, who brought peace in Uganda. Uh, but what we want to do is to dramatize uh, and engage people and show them um, what they can do. One of the things we think is also very important that we've learned along the way here is that, frankly, a lot of kids, a lot of these students and young adults, they're not very interested in going to museums because they can get a lot of their experiences online. And so what we want this building to be is to be a, a physical and virtual destination. And we're designing a, a very extensive um, new uh, website to reach out to people. Um, and we want people to be able to come and have experiences um, and to, uh, by the same token, uh, participate in the debate, whether they're here in the building or whether they're in Nairobi or, or Kansas City. Uh, it's a big world. Uh, we want people to be engaged in this. And there's a community um, a group we're particularly interested in is kids who study abroad because we believe that they're going to be engaged in the world in the future. And chances are they'll be leaders as well. Likewise, the auditorium over here. We're walking into a tiered auditorium. One of the interesting things about Washington uh, uh, is that there are um, there's no place really for uh, international public figures to come and speak. So if the prime minister of pick a country uh, wants to come uh, and uh, the president of Colombia or the uh, international leaders, if they come to Washington, generally you've got to go to the to some hotel ballroom or something, which is pretty crummy. Yeah, this is gorgeous. It's all very peaceful. It's just done in really gorgeous neutral colors. Um, very modern, though. Well, it's a state-of-the-art facility. Uh, and again, there's uh, simultaneous translation facilities. It'll be designed so that if a, uh, someone using these facilities wants to beam it back to Bangkok or Brasilia or wherever, that you can. And it's there's just nothing like this in Washington. So, Robin, um, there's always critics. What what are critics saying about the building? Um, I think uh, everyone I've talked to has been extremely enthusiastic about it. It's very beautiful. I think some people are, frankly, amazed that the small, um, highly focused government uh, agency, the United States Institute of Peace, uh, all of a sudden, uh, a lot of people frankly never even heard of, has one of the most dramatic sites in Washington. And I think that there's a challenge to the Institute to uh, make sure that uh, there's a institution of the quality of the building. As chairman, I believe that there very much is such an institution uh, and that the quality of the people and the work they do meets the standard of this building. But the standard is high. This is a world-class building, and we have to make sure we have a world-class institution as well. The Institute of Peace's budget is $46 million. It costs a million dollars 
a year to keep a soldier in Afghanistan. So we cost the same as 46 soldiers. And we believe we saved a lot more than 46 lives and made the country safer and also, uh, I think, promoted the values that we believe in. Some of our listeners might be thinking about putting together a vacation to Washington, D.C. What's the reason they should spend at least an afternoon here and maybe not at the Smithsonian or someplace else in town? Well, the first thing I'd say is take a look at the website and see if it interests you because the, and I hope it does, um, and I hope also, as I say, that this uh, building and the, the website will be a destination. We hope it, learn, it, it, it interests people, that it engages people, that it moves people. There's a big new world out there, uh, and particularly younger generations who are going to inherit it and live in it have to understand it and figure out new ways to work in it, and that's, that's what we're about. This is, this is about the future, and the future not of the United, just the United States, but the United States in the world. Robin West, thank you so much for this tour. Great. Tara Sunshine, in order to build this magnificent facility, the USIP had to look for donors and private donors. And I know Lockheed Martin uh, gave a $1 million endowment. Now, some critics would say that the U.S. Institute of Peace shouldn't accept money from a defense contractor. What would you say to them? I would say that when you build a building and you create a public-private partnership, um, you inevitably open your doors to all kinds of new players. For us, we have a tapestry, almost a mosaic of new donors to this project, individuals, corporations, companies, foundations, all kinds of, of new players and new actors. And I would say that a defense corporation or an educational foundation um, also have a stake in seeing that conflict gets resolved. These are companies that have people overseas in very difficult zones. And we've had a good, strong committee within our board, bipartisan board, to look at every single gift and make sure that, of course, it's coming from a reputable corporation. Um, we don't accept any foreign corporations. Um, so we're careful about making sure these are American companies, um, but we're very respectful of the range of individuals and companies out there that have a stake in peace building. Tara Sunshine, you're overseeing the Global Peace Building Center. Talk about what's going to be available to the public in this beautiful building. Well, we'd like to make sure that people feel that this is a building that's accessible and that you can come and visit without a pass or an appointment. Um, we'd like this to be a place that beckons and welcomes ordinary uh, folks, and we'd like it to be particularly accessible to students. We hope we'll have a film, an orientation film, about the field of peace building, and we hope we'll have some kind of emotionally captivating and inspirational images and sounds of both conflict and the peaceful approaches to preventing violent conflict. Some of the exhibits sound really interesting. I read on your website there's a witness station, a conflict zone, and a peace lab. What would that be like? 
Well, we've imagined that you would have conflictopia or some fictitious conflict going on at a big ping pong table where you might sit around and have different factors and game out what you would do if certain events happened and how you and the people around you would resolve a game situation and see just how much work it takes to get out of the maze. Anything else that's going to happen in the building? We are very dedicated at the U.S. Institute of Peace to public programming. We will have a large conference center where we can do panels and programs as we do now, but have the virtual capacity to broadcast those programs. I'm envisioning a peace channel of sorts that will ultimately let anywhere, anyone anywhere in the country or the world see our programs and hear the panelists. It's exciting, too, to think about how the USIP building is like a connector to the entire world. It's a medium itself. Well, I think some of what, in fact, um, you're doing with radio and is being done with social networking and will be done both virtually and physically through this building is the sense of a global commons, of a bridge and a connector to organizations and individuals that are all committed to the same end, and that end is a nonviolent end. And I think to be able to bring all of that to the fore and to create the connections and then let people go off themselves and pick up on that energy, but it's important to have a central place or a commons that can be a magnet for all the good works. USIP Executive Vice President Tara Sonnenschein with Suzanne Kreider. So, Suzanne, after all your time with the USIP folks, what left you most hopeful and what did you find yourself hoping for more of uh, from this institution? Paul, it's so encouraging to learn about a federally funded independent institute that holds the intention of world peace. They work tirelessly for their mission, and it's very encouraging. On the other hand, I could imagine that some people would be disappointed that their budget is so low, that it's nowhere near um, what the federal government spends on the defense budget. I could also imagine some people are concerned because they want to see a U.S. Institute of Peace working domestically as much as they're working internationally. Mm -hmm. I think also there's the potential that some people would be concerned about what is their agenda. Are they simply promoting U.S. culture and values as opposed to universal values. So some critics might complain about that. Overall, I would say for an independent institute that only has 300 employees, they are having uh, a tremendous impact on various points along the peace-building curve and I think having this tremendous new headquarters on the National Mall really elevates the cause of peace building and brings it to the national conversation. Suzanne Kreider, thanks for reporting on the United States Institute of Peace for us. Thank you, Paul. You'll find links to longer versions of Suzanne's USIP interviews along with other information on today's program at our website, peacetalksradio.com, where you can also hear all the programs in our series going back to 2003, order CDs of most episodes, sign up for a podcast and our newsletter, and it's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to our nonprofit media organization that produces this program independently from your local public radio station. Details at peacetalksradio.com. For more frequent 
updates and inspiration, follow us on Twitter at Peace Talks Radio and or search for us on Facebook. Additional support comes from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thank you for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Thank you.